we've just got this one word love which just has to mean you know it's overburned with all these different meanings isn't it from friendship to family love to romantic and sexual love to one night stands to long-term marriage you, you love your children love your pets you know it's like this one word is doing a lot of heavy lifting isn't it Holding on. hello and welcome to knowing when to quit i'm sarah wyler i'm a tedx speaker coach and creative multi-passionate and i spent the last six years fascinated by our relationship to quitting how to quit when to quit and if we do quit how to have a beautiful ending Today we're talking about knowing when to quit relationships. We live in a society which tells us that the hallmark of a good relationship is one that lasts for a long time. But does that often mean we stay in relationships too long? Today's guest is Rosie Wilby, an award-winning comedian, author, speaker, and the creator of global hit podcast and book, The Breakup Monologues. Rosie believes that breakups shouldn't be feared and that that there can even be a world of joy and creativity waiting for us on the other side of heartbreak. Welcome, welcome, Rosie. This is very exciting to have you on. Um, I have just finished your wonderful book, The Breakup Monologues, which was hilarious <laughs> honestly I was like yeah I really loved it I also really loved your the way you wrote it in terms of like this butterfly of like the kind of going back and forward and I know I just thought it was, it was a very like it was very clever and I love the mix of personal stories people you've interviewed and like and some science and bits and bobs I just thought it was a it was a great all-rounder <laughs> well thank you so much I'm really glad you enjoyed it um the yeah. breakup monologues and then the subtitle is the unexpected joy of mm. heartbreak which we're probably yeah. going to come on to um in this podcast because it seems very relevant to your themes totally. um, and just to explain that butterfly structure is yeah the first half of the book is sort of loosely told in a backwards timeline and the second half is told in a forwards timeline um to illustrate this idea that as when you did those sort of butterfly paintings as a child, you know, sometimes things appear to be symmetrical, but maybe they're not always depending on which, you know, bits of the paint kind of smoosh across and uh, which which colours and parts of the parts of the picture you're actually focusing on and thinking about and looking at. And, you know, it's also this idea that the end of one chapter is also the beginning mm. of another. And so for people who have had a breakup, maybe one that they weren't expecting, to maybe be able to hold on to some hope that there are new things coming. And mm. for many people, as I've spoken to, better things in the end, although we yeah. don't see that at the time often. <laughs> and one of the things that really struck me about this, one of many things, was this idea of when we're in love, it's like we're a crack addict. Like we are literally, <laughs> we are like, you're like the similarities between like, gotta get my next fix. And like, you know, that actually we are, this can be why it's so hard to to break up because it can be addictive or it can be like I don't know we're 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 getting something from it that can feel incredibly hard to give up and I suppose from your interviews and your own experience like why do people find it so hard when they're in a bad relationship to break up Mm. like that kind of knowing when to quit like what is it that we're fighting with sometimes yeah, I mean, and sometimes those are the most compelling relationships of all, aren't they? The sort of toxic relationships, the codependent relationships, mm. the abusive relationships, um, and knowing when to quit those or giving ourselves permission to quit those can be incredibly difficult. And yes, it is partly to do with the the way the brain works, which isn't necessarily very helpful in terms of our human happiness, <laughs> because it's really all about trying to get us to to have offspring and you know yeah. procreate um so that that's all sort of very primitive wiring um so i don't know how it applies to me as a gay woman <laughs> you know because i'm yeah. not going to get get pregnant from falling in love and having sex um but yeah it's it's so interesting but i also think 
that our social narratives that have been constructed around romantic relationships are deeply flawed as well mm. and lead us to being unhappy and feeling like failures when relationships have gone wrong. And it was a few years ago that I started the Breakup Monologues podcast, which has led to me reading the uh, writing the book that you've been reading yeah. and enjoying. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and... I felt then that there really wasn't much discussion about breakups at all. And any any narratives that we did had did have kind of movies that you'd seen or ways people were represented in the media. It was all around failure and sadness and like, oh, isn't Jennifer Aniston really sad? You know, because Brad yeah. Pitt broke up with her and went off with that Angelina Jolie. You know, it was that kind of, isn't it terrible to be dumped? Isn't that a terrible thing? Whereas I started to realize that actually after my breakups were some of the times that I had really thrived and really yeah. been incredibly creative and found that headspace to do some of the things that I'd been putting off like writing books or doing comedy or launching new projects or mm. doing something exciting and interesting that you sort of get wrapped up in the coziness of commitment and forget to do um when you're when you're in that coupledom and that sort of narrative of coupledom that that is meant to sort of fulfill us yeah. <laughs> and you know we're not meant to do other things you know you're meant to just just adore your partner full time surely you know <laughs> whatever sexuality and and identity you you are so yeah i think i think it's it's really interesting how we culturally celebrate longevity yeah. in relationships you know wedding anniversaries are celebrated in this kind of ascending hierarchy of gifts you know from paper and tin and wood up to rubies and gold and diamonds yeah. and so you know somehow the people who've stay together forever and then die together <laughs> well yeah. you know don't necessarily die together I mean one might die before the other and then one is um alone after after that um you know that's somehow seen as this success that's like yeah. oh, you know you won at love you sort of ascended the relationship escalator as, as they call it you know gone through all the stages and you stuck at it and you stuck together but some of those people what, might yeah. be unhappy and you know we have this narrative that um you're not meant to change partners whereas you know i know you talk to a lot of professional people about the parallels you know with our professional lives and how um you know when we change jobs there's a lot of feelings of loss as, as well yeah. but i think culturally it is understood that we might change jobs a few times in our lifetimes we might want to sort of progress through different roles in that professional setting whereas the narratives around love still are that you you mustn't change partner that's a terrible yeah. thing that's a failure you know why would you you know commit to a relationship and then move away from it in some way so it, it's yeah. so it's so interesting when of course the reality for many 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 people is that we're sort of serial monogamists and we we do have more than one relationship in a lifetime mm. it's not the classic old sense of monogamy which comes from the greek meaning monos gamos one marriage for life we, we've adapted it to mean one marriage at a time <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And what, what i really got from your story is that through by the time you met your current partner you like had got really good at being in a relationship like you you met her and you're like from all of the things I've learned about who I am and was it the concept of 40 love of kind of like meeting someone post 40 is that how you understood it yeah but well it's it's interesting because my wife is actually a tennis coach so oh, cool. I, and I love tennis I'm a tennis fan and that's sort of why I was quite interested to find out more about her when we we met through a dating website and um so tennis sort of got us together in a way and I do think that when you get to midlife when you get to about 40 you know a lot more about how you want to be in a relationship and who you want to be and who you want to be with mm. what sort of person you're after what your boundaries are what your needs are what your desires are um whether you want to have you know other friends outside of that and how that all works and fits together so I just think we're ill-equipped to articulate that when we're in our 20s when many mm. people you know they do meet somebody they stay with long long term but they might get to a point where they realize they've never really communicated because they weren't trained in how to we aren't yeah. sort of taught in school we're 
you know, we, we have sex education lessons where, a, <laughs> you know, a prim biology mistress goes, making love. Um, <laughs> uh, but, you know, we don't learn about the psychology of relationships and how complicated human beings are and how hard it is to connect and communicate. And that's why we see all these quite poor behaviours now in the sort of online dating world, like ghosting and breadcrumbing and submarining. And there's this whole new lexicon of breakups I know, that I, I like to decode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, my favourite one is Marley. Oh, yeah, submarining is where you go someone and pop up again every so often. <laughs> and marleying is where you do go someone, but you pop up again at Christmas. Remind me that what that was from. What was the, the term from marleying? Marleying. So it's like, you know, from the, um, the Christmas Carol, the oh, um, right. Scrooge gets visited by three ghosts. So it's like that idea of ghosting, um, so oh, marleying, and you, yeah, you just pop up again at Christmas, you know, in time for your Christmas fling, because, you know, you're not that interested in this person, but perhaps you're just feeling a bit lonely at Christmas, because mm. everyone's sort of all coupley, aren't they, at that festive time, um, you know, cosying up on the sofa, watching old Christmas movies and stuff, so maybe you're a bit bored, and you, <laughs> you just want someone to cosy up with for a, a couple of weeks, you know, over over that season. I once heard the term wintermacy, that idea of winter intimacy, which I thought was really nice. Yeah, that's right. Um, people coupling up for the, the winter months um, and there's the sort of cuffing season and mm. uncuffing season, isn't there? That's, that's a very similar thing. So, yeah, yeah, so, so interesting. Quit. And what, one of the scenes in your story that really stood out was that thing of like just before you're about to do a show you said there was like 100 people sell out show and you just had a breakup <laughs> and you had this thing of like should I do the show but you tell 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 me what that tell everyone how that went because I thought that was such a powerful example of like how creativity or how performance can actually alchemize and I think you mm -hmm. talked about that a lot like the power of your comedy is actually and whatever outlet your podcast all of these things has been a way of like shifting some of the the, the sadness around a breakup would you share that story yeah. and a bit about that yeah well totally um creativity is a wonderful way of processing traumatic events um i think any writer or any creative person will tell you that writing their story down sharing it with other people speaking it out loud in some kind of mm -hmm. a way even if it is just something you write down and, and keep privately it's it's some kind of documentation of this thing happened and it's mm -hmm. real and I've, I'm going to deal with it um you know rather than just shut it away and and not really understand what what has what has gone on at all um but yeah I did um gig on the the day the night that I had been um been dumped after my five-year relationship and um of course I joked that she dumped me well she did dump me by email and I joked at the time that I felt much better <laughs> once I corrected her spelling um and, and change the font right <laughs> and change the font that's right wingdings is better uh, <laughs> that really tickled and, me uh, yeah but it was um I think reflecting on that, you know, breakup, I think the reason we couldn't communicate very well face to face when we had sort of thought about breaking up in the past, I think I tried to break up with her previously, but then she'd sort of done that thing that people do of going, oh, no, don't break up with me. And then eventually they break up with you because <laughs> you, yeah. you sort of got guilt tripped out of doing it. And then they, they put it in the back of your mind that you did try to dump them. So um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a terrible, terrible game, isn't it? But I think what I noticed was the communication within the relationship had been... Mm all along so you know I think it was a sign that maybe we weren't going to communicate as well about about separating as maybe I have done in you know a subsequent yeah. breakup that I had where we had a much more conscious unraveling of things which is still difficult you know it's never easy there's no perfect way of doing it but um it was it was easier than 
sort of feeling disempowered when one person sort of took control of the narrative yeah. if you like um it felt more collaborative to do it the way i've done it latterly where it was more more of a conscious uncoupling as uh, mm. <laughs> gwyneth would say um but yeah it i did have this gig booked in i was doing an edinburgh preview of actually the first part of my trilogy of shows about love and relationships um that was called the science of sex and that was very much a celebratory show about attraction to people those initial heady days at the beginning of a relationship and obviously the trilogy kind of ended with a show about breaking up uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah and i just thought this feels a really difficult and challenging show to deliver when you know i thought i was in a relationship and that was the yeah. space i was creating and writing it from and then that is completely altered and so i phoned the promoter um a guy called simon and he sort of said oh you know i think you could still do it and you're you're great and you'll be great you know he was really affirming mm. and he said you know you could just be honest with the audience right up top and sort of say this is what's going on and it, yeah. it slightly changed my thinking and headspace about the show and it was this really raw and vulnerable and connected yeah. and authentic performance and um got sort of lovely lovely feedback from the audience and um kept in touch with with some of those people and yeah i think it was you know really powerful lesson in how sharing what's happening mm -hmm. can produce this kind of magic connection really which should be what comedy or performing is all about but yeah. sometimes we're just not really in that completely open and raw an authentic state sometimes we're just a bit tired and we're just going through the motions aren't we you know we've all given sort of delivered sessions or talks or workshops or something where we're you know just there we are present but yeah. we're not sort of ultra present in in that people way connect that with be. that that realness don't they I, I once ended up at an open mic gig in San Francisco where I hadn't realized but the theme was about death. And I only realized this like halfway through people would get, and you got picked out at random to perform. So I'm oh. sitting there being like, at any moment I'm going to be picked up and I don't have any material about death. And it was like, I was just so, I was like, oh God, am I, should I do my rap about Michael Gove? Could I shoehorn that in? And in the end, I just went up and went, guys, I'm from London. Didn't know this was a death night. Can I just sing you some comedy about freelancing? And they were like, yeah. And it was just this wonderful moment of like, I didn't know. <laughs> and actually just Brilliant. being really honest was like exactly what was needed because if I was trying to do, I don't know, it was just such a good lesson in people just want you to be real, don't they? They just want to, because they'll sense it anyway. And obviously with you, if you'd have gone on and been trying to, I don't know, they'd have sent something was weird in, in, in you trying to hide yeah. something and then that's unsettling. So if you can just be oh, like, it's really hey, weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, because I was actually recording an episode of my podcast just um, just this weekend at a festival mm. with Lou Sanders, and she, oh, yeah, she had done a gig on the night of a breakup, a significant mm. breakup as well, when she'd been engaged, and she did a, a gig the night that ended, and she said she started off the gig, you know, trying to just, I think she thought everything would be normal and mm -hmm. she was fine. She thought she was more fine about it than she was, you know. <laughs> she could tell it was just not connecting and it was weird. So she did just talk about what, what was happening and then the gig completely changed. So I think yeah. you're right, there is that sort of authenticity. But something else mm -hmm. that I was thinking about while listening to one or two of your other episodes um, was it's, it's really interesting how I have struggled about knowing when to quit because and generally or with breakups well with breakups more so than mm. i think at work and relationships mm. i've i've actually not been too bad with career stuff i um yeah i did sort of really love it when i went freelance and um sort of started working in the creative arts i'm i mean i did have a um 
a PR company that I ran for, mm -hmm. for many years. And that was sort of something I could balance with performing and writing work and that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I, I felt it, found it very liberating to to go freelance, although it's scary. There's all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of reasons why freelancing can be difficult and isn't necessarily right for everybody. Um, but yeah, I do think I sometimes feel guilty, um, and I, I find it really difficult to inflict that on somebody else. If you know what I mean, to sort mm. of cause that huge, incredible change and shift in somebody else's life i mean it's this profound thing that you are delivering this this sort of profound news that alters and shifts their imagined future you know not only their just sort of current day-to-day -day existence uh, but how they've imagined their whole life panning out and so even though we've said that it might be ultimately you know a positive change mm. they certainly won't kind of receive it as such in in the immediate aftermath so i think that's why i found it really difficult and i think what was really interesting you you, you had um shani silver on recently didn't mm. you um talking about single derm and and the sort of the pressures that women face and the sort of stigma and so on um and talking largely from a, a heteronormative standpoint and i find it really interesting how more and more i'm seeing narratives um, from my heterosexual female friends, where it's like, yay, I left him, you know, he was not yeah. good for me, he was cheating, he was sleeping with the nanny, you know, or whatever. Yeah. And I think straight women can all get behind one another and collaborate and congratulate one another and be like, yeah, you know, you go, girl. <laughs> and there's an, I think in a sort of patriarchal society, women can get together and have a sort of easier binary narrative of the good and the bad mm. person in the breakup to hold on to um, and obviously it's never that straightforward I have spoken to some heartbroken men who <laughs> you know hadn't oh. done horrible culturally trans transgressive things like have affairs you know and they don't know why they got dumped and um, but it is interesting how you know the majority of divorces are initiated by women um, that's interesting but then, yeah and that's sort of perhaps contrary to our social assumptions about male mm. and female behavior and uh, perhaps women are just more brutally honest and we're trained better, better in admin, maybe well we're trained better in communicating aren't yeah. we it's sort of yeah. socially and culturally so maybe we just can be honest and say look <laughs> this isn't right this mm. isn't happening and so you do see lesbian partnerships breaking down the most frequently of all and gay men having a low divorce rate but what I've been thinking about this morning is how I think as a feminist, I have felt a particular loaded sense of guilt about the fact that if I break up with somebody, that other person is a woman, a queer yeah. woman who, you know, we get more shit in the world than a straight man. So I don't know whether it, it feels more loaded with guilt that you're profoundly altering someone's life and they're a fellow woman whereas mm. maybe we can sort of let ourselves off the hook a tiny bit when we think oh you know my husband is a successful affluent yeah. white middle-class straight man he's gonna be fine um yeah, i know so it sounds ridiculous but i do think there's something mm. in my head that i just feel like women should stick together particularly queer women you know we shouldn't be mean to each other but then if i've got to break up with somebody because the relationship isn't working anymore mm. you know it's probably kinder to do it than not but i think i yeah. have struggled massively with you know you don't want to mess other women around that's such an interesting perspective but yeah then aren't you also messing them around by staying with them well, of course. Pretending, of course. <laughs> and then it, it's going to have to happen at some point, isn't it? But uh, yeah, yeah, I love your your empathy of like for your empathy your, or your commitment to sisterhood. It's like, well, it's going to never break up. <laughs> but can't, yeah, I can't, do. Can't upset them. I know, and it's ridiculous. But I think there's been a bit of that strange psychology mm. going on for me, um, and I, I think it is peculiar.
And also you were saying that if women split up with a man, then all the girls club together and hang out. But in, in lesbian circles, you're all friends with each other. So who, I know, who takes yeah, who in the divorce? And, you, you cannot yeah. take sides in quite that binary mm. kind of a way because everybody probably all knows each other. So mm. it's it's much more murky and muddy in terms of deciding who's at fault. And obviously it really is in any breakup, in, in any divorce, isn't it? But, you know, I think yeah. it can be the case that, you know, within heterosexual divorces, the women all sort of support one another and this sort of tribe forms around the the woman who's been cheated on or, or whatever. I mean, I also spoke recently to Rebecca Humphreys, who yeah. uh, was she was on my podcast, and she's obviously written this incredibly powerful book about how, you know, her boyfriend, her partner, a few years ago was caught, you know, snogging his dance partner from Strictly Come Dancing, you know, and it was all over the papers. And so she, I know, which is just this awful way to have your life without any of your permission or control sort of paraded around publicly. Um, and she, you know, took control of that narrative and mm. spoke out on Twitter about her you know, her sort of feelings about what, what was happening and how she wanted to sort of own it and not be portrayed as this victim. Um, and it's incredible how many sort of high-powered women just sort of sent her all these messages of solidarity. Mm. And, you know, I think in that case, you can sort of clearly see that perhaps, um, <laughs> you know, his behaviour wasn't ideal. Um but, but it's often muddy. There's often real mm. murkiness around, you know, why breakup happens. And we can we can all behave in less than ideal ways, can't we? Yeah. One of the things that I really stood out from your book was your reflections on poly relationships and, and how actually breakups in, in polyamorous circles can be quite different. And maybe not, you know, I remember you saying that if in a you know a monogamous relationship when you break up it's very final and the stuff that you really connected with even the non-sexual stuff just also has to be lost for like you can't be in a new relationship and be still having this kind of meeting of minds or snogs with your ex but yeah in poly circles I mean you say like some this woman's like oh sometimes you've got to declutter though because you might have 25 <laughs> partners or but yeah I'm really interested what, what you what you've been learning about what we can learn from poly relationships and and also one more thing on that was that I loved what you you said about it's not really about monogamous or poly, it's about whether there's trust. I just mm. thought that was such a good way of putting it because we can think when things go wrong, ah, it's because they try polyamory. Yeah. Rather than because actually the comms was wrong. And obviously heartache happens in in monogamous relationships too. So yeah, I loved all your reflections on that. And yeah, what what can we learn from the poly community about how to do breakups well? Yeah, well, it's so interesting. I started thinking about polyamory and open relationships and this whole world of ethical non-monogamy when I was writing my first book, which was called Is Monogamy Dead? Um, and I that was a comedy show that I toured as mm. well. And I did like a Radio 4, 4 thought as well, um, called A New Currency of Commitment. And I was really thinking about how, if you think about relationships in that different way, it does change that whole value system that we've placed on erotic love versus platonic love and all these different types of love. And the Greeks had all of these different words, where, whereas we've just got this one word love, which yeah. just has to mean, you know, it's overburned with all these different meanings, isn't it? From friendship to family love to romantic and sexual love to one night stands to long-term marriage, you, you love your children, love your pets. You know, it's like, this one word is doing a lot of heavy lifting, yeah, isn't yeah, yeah. it? <laughs> <laughs> and it can get a bit confusing when we say "I love you." What what do we what do we really mean? Um, so, what I particularly like in the polyamory community is there's just a whole load out of necessity. There's a whole load more communication mm. about relationships. There's a whole load more new language. Like if you do feel uh, like that woman who's got you know 20 partners or whatever like uh, you've reached your threshold you can say that you're polysaturated yeah, yeah. Uh, which is really nice um but yeah there is this kind of new fun language and I sort of had a glossary of some of the terms in the back of my first book and 
it's it's interesting how once you start thinking about relationships in a different way and you move away from these pressures that you must get married you must have children you must live together you must stay together until you die um you start to think well what am i having a relationship for what what am i you know why am i doing this why are we both or even more of us perhaps doing this and you know if it's not working after a certain period of time is that a failure no it's you know you've still grown and the relationship has enriched your life in some ways and you know that duration should not be the the yardstick the measure Mm. of how precious it is in your life in fact in some ways maybe you grow and enrich yourself the most if you have more than one relationship obviously there's a balance um because you know you couldn't sort of get to know anyone fully if you were sort of just hopping from one relationship to the next very rapidly but equally you know i do believe that my relationships have been a process of of evolution i think it was pippa evans came on my show and she was talking about you know her relationships being like the sort of you know the evolution diagram where you you know sort of got the crouching uh kind of gorilla and eventually the sort of standing man at the end and i think it is this process of evolution as we you know start to understand as we start to evolve as we start to communicate and think better in our relationships and we are more aware of how how the heck to do them a little bit compassionately let's hope Yeah, and I guess sometimes that might be with the same person, but it doesn't have to be. And there was there was a term you used, I think it was, I actually highlighted it. What's her name? Karen, Kathy, someone? Um, and it was from, oh no, maybe it's from The Ethical Slut, but in Kathy's book said, many oh, of yeah. our relationships work best if they're allowed to run their natural course. For some, this can be considered as serving a purpose, and then we've learned what we need to, and it's time to accept an end. Such connections might last weeks, months, or years, but duration is not measure of their value. I just thought that, yeah. was, that was such a wonderful reminder that it's about, has this, is there anything more to get from this? And yeah. I think that's really, when we talk about quitting, I think that is the essence of it. It's like, is there more here? Or is, is there enough? Is it done? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's, it's scary though too, isn't it? Because we really lived by that philosophy I'm not sure people would stay together longer than, I don't know, seven, eight years. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe know. I'm just putting that out there. Cause I just think in that amount of time, you really get to know each other and you form a good connection yeah. and a good com- sense of companionship and trust. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't know. That's how long, you know, I've been with my wife seven years and I just, I sort of feel like maybe we do know everything about each other, but I'm sure we will grow and we will surprise one another and there will be more things to learn. But sometimes it can feel like at that stage, you're getting into certain routines together and you can finish one another's sentences. And I don't know. I mean, we are monogamous and we're happy. Although, gosh, you know, it'd be interesting if we ever did. And I don't think we're planning to, (laughs) but if we ever did open up our relationship. (laughs) (laughs) you know and have other partners would that bring different energy different ideas Mm. in to the relationship certainly people I know who are poly and who do do that say that yes it really really can but of course it can be really complex and messy and (laughs) and everything as well so who the heck knows that thing of like knowing everything about each other but maybe that's like phase one. And then like you decide after seven years, like, do we want to do phase two, which is like the deepening and the like, there's some like, there's some different kind of mode you go into. But, you know, I think if we were really radically honest about is there more to gain from this relationship? Maybe there would just be like different phases rather than, do you know what I mean? I don't know. But it's such an interesting one. Mm-hmm. It's a really interesting one. And I, I do think, I do think when you enter that next phase, I think it, probably does involve slightly more separateness and other people not necessarily in terms of lovers and and kind of sexual 
activity mm. outside the primary partnership. But I do think it does involve reaching out to your friends and, you know, sometimes having separate friends and separate activities and separate interests. I think that can be incredibly healthy. And I was chatting to, at, at this festival, I was chatting to Mike Fenton-Stevens, who does the Time Capsule podcast, um, and he was saying, I have, he'd been to see my show, and he's like, I've never had a breakout, Rosie. I've never been broken wow. up with, never had a breakout. Wow. I've just been with my wife. <gasps> and, his, and then his wife came over, and, and he was like, the, the thing is, you know, we're here together this weekend, but we're doing totally different things all day, every day, and then we just meet up at the end. And I was like, that sounds really interesting, because you're both doing exactly what you want to do and going yeah. to see the sessions that you want to see. And, and occasionally you might cross over, um, but mostly you're sort of nurturing your own mm. unique interests which we have to admit at some point aren't always going to completely overlap and fit and align with your partners because we yeah. are unique we're individuals we're not part of this i mean i hate all these you know old ideas that somehow your soulmate is the person who completes you you know you're sort of oh, half no. a person and <laughs> until you meet somebody yeah. um you know because of course people can be incredibly empowered and have their greatest sense of agency when they are single as i've sort of indicated yeah. in terms of creativity um so i think knowing that you are negotiating between two unique and different individuals within any partnership surely as part of it particularly as you as you get further into it one of the things i really love that you covered in this was professional breakups i really don't think that this is um covered enough talked about enough i probably have had my biggest heartache through professional breakups like running a creative project with someone or you know yeah probably like I've been in partnerships probably that have felt more intense than romantic relationships through running businesses projects and you talked a bit about was it your editor or publisher that broke up with you um, it was my first ever agent and agent. we were friends as well um and so I thought that we were sort of going to have this incredible working relationship together um you know because we already knew each other and, and had a connection and she was a gay woman which you know in the sort of heteronormative publishing industry is still relatively rare and she was going to be championing a lot of queer authors and I thought well this is a great person to have sort of waving a flag mm. for me but <laughs> yeah it was really disappointing when that went wrong because when you first start in sort of publishing and writing you don't know how easy it will be to get another agent and as it happened I, I did get another agent and she's fantastic so you know that's great and perhaps it's better not to have the complexity and confusion of having a sort yeah. of personal friendship as well because um it that perhaps that muddied things and clouded things because I sort of felt she should um <laughs> she should take my side when my publisher yeah. were being well <laughs> a bit less less than ethical i i can say that now because they they went bust um but they were yeah i was getting phone calls from the bookseller like asking about whether the authors on with that publisher were getting paid because we were not um and it wasn't right and i felt God. it should be okay to speak out about it but my agent was very much about appeasing whoever was publishing your book um so it's, <laughs> it's so i suppose ideologically we differed there because i feel it's important to speak out about authors and our rights and mm. you know not for us to sort of be kind of just shut up if we want to complain about something where where things are not right um whereas i guess people working within the system know that they've got to sort of play by the rules to to some degree mm. and you know it's that question of whether if you're sort of if you have some agency within the machine can you then start to make changes about you know how authors get paid and and the sort of fairness of that or you know should we be talking about it all along yeah <laughs> but it's yeah it struck me that like that had hit you on a level that maybe was surprising because it you know, often we talk about breakups as romantic, but there can be friendship breakups and there can be professional breakups that 
can be just as painful. And, oh, and yeah, it was, no, I was, yeah. Oh, yeah, I was totally like, I was crying in the street, you know, I wrote yeah. that, that sort of crying in Brixton. <laughs> yeah. It was like a busker singing No Woman, No Cry. Uh, but I was crying, yeah. I really was. That's right. And I, and I, yeah, yeah, I was... I was really like stumbling around and couldn't like I was yeah. disoriented. I couldn't find my way home because I thought, you know, she'd called me into the office for us to have a chat to sort of work things out. What was our yeah. plan? How were we going to sort of sort out the fact that the publisher were, you know, clearly things were a bit awry and things weren't right. And she would no, she wanted to dump me. And I was like, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because she thought it was, you know, it was trouble she didn't she didn't need. Um so yeah, it definitely hit hard. And I suppose in a way it was like a friendship and a professional breakup mm. sort of wrapped into one. But I think particularly at that stage before I had learnt a great deal about the publishing industry, which I've now taken yeah. the time to do. And I think any author should empower themselves with that knowledge, even if you have publishers and agents and publicists and people doing loads of things and designing your cover and all of those things, you should know what's what. So you, you're armed with the right language. Um, but I was quite reliant on her initially because I didn't know a whole lot about how publishing worked. I knew mm. all about the comedy industry, but then publishing is this whole weird other world. So I felt that I needed her, I suppose. Yeah. And then was there an unexpected joy of that breakup? Um, I mean, yes, in a way, although it, it, um, it was that was quite a difficult feeling and it was quite difficult, of course, that I've written about it because I had to yeah. tell her, I had to tell everyone that I've mentioned in the book, yeah. even though their identity, they're not named, you know, their identities are concealed and so on. But, you know, I had to tell everyone who is in the book in some way that I have written about this experience and, mm. you know, I hope that's okay. Do you need to see anything before it goes to print? Um, and she was absolutely fine. But I think that was one of the ones I was most nervous about because I thought yeah. it, it sort of feels a bit weird because I'm writing, a, you know, about yeah, sort of a, an matter. experience within the <laughs> publishing industry in a book that's going to get yeah. published. Um, and, it, it, you know, you don't want to be pissing people off and I didn't want her to feel, you know, upset about it in any way. But I think the way I've written it really about all of those breakups is... I, I hope sort of compassionate and not, you know, sort of yeah, finger yeah, pointing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. And obviously one of the big relationships you talk about breaking up with is the Edinburgh fringe. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love that idea of like, well, that there can be toxic relationships with, with institutions or with festivals. Like, do you want to share a bit about that? Well, yeah. And I, I honestly think it was my most toxic abusive relationship and yeah. I, I I'm sure there are lots of comedians who think that as well but every August they keep returning to this horrible <laughs> abusive partner that steals all their money um <laughs> and and makes them feel terrible about themselves and treats them way worse than they would be treated the rest of the year round and yet they think oh well I've got to do this. Um, and there was this feeling in the comedy industry, and I think the pandemic has completely changed this, but there was this feeling you had to do the fringe. You had to go for the entire month and stay in some overpriced, terrible, Insane. disgusting flat that, you know, someone would have rented out to unsuspecting comedians, not bothered to clean or, you know, there's all kinds of horror stories aren't there I mean uh, there was one female performer I know who was staying in this hostel because she couldn't afford like her own flat and stuff or you know or to flat share and she was like sharing a dorm with loads of men that she felt uncomfortable with it's, you know it sounded really difficult um and yeah there were people who leave part way through the month you know because they're just suffering either financially or mentally or emotionally mm. or physically yeah. <laughs> it, it's a lot um when you're looking around at other performers and you know they're getting loads of stars and loads of reviews mm. and selling out their shows and I think until you understand the machine behind Edinburgh Fringe and how much money those people are paying <laughs> <laughs> um to to have 
all those stars and posters and publicists running around and producers and and stuff um you kind of realize that you you're onto a hiding to nothing really if you're just going up on your own as an independent grassrootsy performer mm. which you know you used to be able to do but it's just changed too much um to be able to do that really successfully now so yeah it was it was a really difficult relationship and a difficult decision to feel like i'm not going to do that anymore um mm. because and is it a gosh, full a full decision like you you like i would never go back or is it kind of well like I say the pandemic has changed it and um I'm curious now I mean I guess it's going to end up being sort of horrible again like it was but I feel like maybe it's been quite nice for a couple of years or so and it was Mm. more like the old fringes um where you know kind of indie comedians had a slightly louder voice because there was not quite so many performers up there and not quite that saturation I don't know have you have you done it I I I haven't as a comedian I've been to the fringe like when I was a kind of youth theatre type stuff but I have I've gone up there but I I never I used to do a lot of comedy but I never took a show to the fringe (laughs) and I don't know maybe I just was a bit stubborn (laughs) to spend that much money but I mean you know I've had some good experiences there and you know for a few years my shows were doing you know relatively pretty well there you know I would sort of break even and I would you know recoup my costs you know because I would sell tickets and I would sort of negotiate well about posters and flyers and all the things you can negotiate around a bit but yeah I think the last time I went there were just so many things where I felt ripped off but (laughs) it just left this really bad feeling and it had been a show that had done so well everywhere else um and it just you know to be in a a venue that just wasn't appropriate and wasn't technically equipped Mm. and it was just kind of scuzzy (laughs) it strikes me also as like kind of professional maturity like at the point of your career where you're like uh I'm gonna choose the things I do now and I'm gonna choose (laughs) whether this environment actually is right for me and you know I think maybe when you start every whatever career in you're just like just happy to be here (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> whatever I need yeah, to do well, that's it, and then it? you question you're, you're a so, bit more <laughs> you're so happy to be there <laughs> one of the other things I wanted to chat I know we've, we've got like maybe 10 minutes but um mm. about these like the anti-love drugs <laughs> to help the <laughs> the idea of like real real versions of the eternal spot sunshine of the spotless mind-esque you know so what was it the idea that um there are some drugs that actually make you less in love, like maybe like antidepressants that might make like yeah. you lose your libido. But could we use them for like for good when someone's mm-hmm. wanting to be That's less right. so connected? In the book, I speak to a neuroethicist called mm. Brian Earp, and he is doing this really interesting research into the area of both love drugs, which might help us bond and connect and stay in relationships um and in fact it links back to how mdma was often used mm. in couples therapy to to help couples communicate um you know before it became sort of outlawed as this rave drug um but also anti-love drugs is something he's looking at and you know this idea that we have so many chemicals that we take and we put into our bodies, um, you know, everything from contraceptive pills to antidepressants to medication for ADHD or, you know, all, all kinds of things. I mean, I'm, I fairly recently started on HRT, you know, I'm slathering mm. all this gel onto my legs every day. I don't really know what it is or what it's doing. <laughs> and, you know, but it seems to be doing something, you know, but most things we take like that, mm. we have been sold them on the basis of it having a particular effect what we don't realize is that there's usually a massive sheet of paper with loads and loads of small print about all the other effects that it has. And the side effects, you know, might be things that are beneficial. We always think of side effects as ooh, horrible things like oh, you might so feel sick or have a headache. But sometimes the side effects might be things you could harness for good. So, for example, you see a lot of people go on to SSRI antidepressants and feel less a sort of reduction in libido which we might think is a bad thing but 
you, you often find that they feel less connected to their particular partner. Now, say if you were in the abusive relationship, like I think we were talking about right at the beginning of this mm. chat, you know, well, how do we know when to leave, when to quit? Well, this is something that might help us know that and help us to quit. Because if you're in an abusive relationship and you want to somehow just stop thinking that they are the one and you must be with them mm. at all costs to your own self-esteem and self-worth, um, you could take a pill that would help you to feel a bit less connected to them and less, <laughs> you know, mm. um, compelled by the narrative that that you must be with them. So it's it's so interesting how that could almost be Gosh. a good a good side effect. You you could have an anti love drug and get yourself out of a toxic abusive relationship. And sort of protect your feelings a tiny bit more because you don't feel so deeply connected to them. Yeah, and and not have the guilt that you were yes, talking not, about. <laughs> not have the guilt that I was talking about. I know that's right. So it's really mm. interesting. So we could sort of harness some of these drugs for for different mm. purposes. They're just sold to us, you know, as antidepressants because that has seemed like a very marketable thing for particular drugs to be used for but they could be used for different things you know it might be particularly pretty much the same substance but it, it could be in a few years it might be oh here are your anti-love drugs gosh i'm always i know what's coming to mind is like being spiked but almost the opposite of like a date rape <laughs> like if you're if you're in a relationship and you don't want to be in anymore just like put it in someone's smoothie <laughs> and be like oh they're not feeling it either <laughs> <laughs> they're not feeling it either yeah yeah gosh <laughs> that's where my mind went I'm obviously thinking about it it really brings up a whole questionable world of ethics doesn't it really (laughs) it does a bit um and what do you I know we're just starting to come to a close now but I suppose like I'm so curious the fact that you have spent how many years like five years or something or maybe longer researching and talking to people about breakups like what's the impact that's had on your psyche around breakups um I think not to fear a breakup Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that, you know, ironically makes it easier to stay in a relationship yeah. because you're not really thinking about breakups all the time. I used to, in my early relationships, be like, oh, what's going to happen when we break up? And it was this terrible sort of obsession. It almost made it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, that there was this sort of disaster zone looming, this terrible threat, and... Of course, that would always mean that you were heading for a breakup because you couldn't think about anything else. You couldn't just have fun in the moment. Um, and I think if you don't fear a breakup and you know you could survive it, which mm. largely speaking, I think I do because I have survived some. But, well, who knows? You know, maybe maybe something really terrible and toxic could happen that would really floor me. But I think the fact of no longer being with somebody that had been precious to me I think I could deal with that and understand Mm. that and I've got enough resilience within myself to sort of find my own path and then maybe Mm. reach out to new people or new connections as and when the time was right I sort of have faith in in that (laughs) in my ability to to do that much more than I perhaps did then Yeah, I love that. And I I think that's such a wonderful paradox, isn't it? That, or the irony that by knowing that we could survive one, we are more likely to not have one (laughs) so soon. I just, (laughs) and and that kind of feel, and and the fact that we can sometimes create the situation we're fearing. So there's something about like being, being with what is and knowing, then I think that's much more about that natural cause, isn't it? Just like, well, when do we feel, when is it the right time to break up rather than it would be the worst thing. Yeah, and I suppose just just like a final question to you, what is the joy you've had from Heartache over the years? What's been like the biggest thing you've got from it? Well, I think creativity, you know, yeah. as, as we've discussed, a kind of enhanced drive to create and communicate and connect. Um, and so that has really been the joy of of thinking and writing about breakups so deeply (laughs) I used to collaborate with a a singer who is an amazing singer songwriter and then she got into a relationship with her now husband and stopped writing and in his in his um groom speech at the wedding he went 
you know, obviously when Rihanna met me, she stopped writing. So the week before the wedding, I just thought I'd dump her, you know, get the creative juices flowing again. <laughs> no, he's only joking, but it was, he really acknowledged, like, to yeah. stop writing. <laughs> yeah, he acknowledged the um, disastrous effect he'd had on her. <laughs> creativity yeah I was like we were she was bringing these songs when she was single and they were all so like big and then she was when she started dating him I was like wait what is this it's like twee little little ditties <laughs> so interesting, <laughs> but yeah I think that's wonderful like the um yeah the creativity that can come out the independence and it almost is a wonder why anyone wants to get into a relationship when you find when you thrive in that <laughs> I know. I mean, we should say relationships obviously can be amazing and joyful as well. And connecting with yeah. other human beings is it's brilliant, you know, and we have that security and structure and we have our pets, our dog and our cat, you know, and that's mm. our, our family. Um, yeah. And it would be awful to sort of break that up, um, you know, because we'd fight over the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then um, what, what would you like to share about the stuff that you're doing and, and how people can find you? Well, um, yes, I'd love to hear from people. I'm on Twitter at Rosie Wilby. I'm on Instagram at Breakup Monologues. And the podcast, The Breakup Monologues, is available wherever you get your podcasts. And the book, The Breakup Monologues, The Unexpected Joy of Heartbreak, is available wherever you get your books. Your local indie bookshop should be able to order it or you can get it on all those sort of online places as well um it's uh yeah there's a paperback now out this year hardback Ooh. you've got the nice paperback very good it's nice and dinky and you can pack it in yeah, your it. suitcase for your holidays very easy, <laughs> very easy. oh i remember the one thing we were going to talk about is the hilarious footnotes uh, where you were like on the uh, audio version have you got one minute to share the story oh yes there are lots of footnotes in the book which <laughs> um have fun asides about yeah. oh gosh i don't know fun studies that that display or or illustrate certain things that I reference um yes and some of those are quite ridiculous flights of fancy about I don't know bonobos or you know comedy uh, asides <laughs> comedy asides lots of things um but of course when I was narrating the audiobook then there's a question of where do you put something that yeah. is a footnote that appears on paper at the bottom of the page so the reader can really decide whether they read it at the point yeah. where the asterisk hits or whether they're going to just sort of save that and read that later maybe you'll read the chapter and you'll read all the footnotes later mm. you know you can do whatever you like um and some of the footnotes it made sense to just say in the moment where it becomes relevant like i would get the little asterisk and i would say um oh footnote you know, as if it was just a thought that just occurred yeah, to me, which is kind of what it is, really. But then occasionally it was a bit jarring to do that, and we just read them sort of mm. at the end of that page or something. Um, yeah, but that, it was something I really to bear in mind, them. because I, I don't know if anyone has ever put so many footnotes into a book. It was, it was wonderful. It's like, it was quite, I just, it felt like a comedy routine, though. It felt like yeah. that thing of just like, oh, by the way, you know, that it was that's, a really, it comedy, felt very live. Yeah. Yeah. That's how comedy works, isn't it? You have these kind of afterthoughts. That's the yeah. sort of technical term that I was taught about, you know, the, the sort of, you know, the topper on a joke. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a bit like replicating that kind of idea. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so probably we're saying then that the audiobook version that I narrated with the footnotes in various places <laughs> <laughs> is available too, um, yeah. and Kindle and all the usual formats. Seamless as well. little plug there, seamless little plug to the audio. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Brilliant. Oh, Rosie, it's been so nice to chat to you. I feel like there's so much more we could say, but that was a great taster um, of like, yeah, all of these wonderful thoughts. But yeah, guys, read the book because it's hilarious. And you'll hear lots of great, great breakup stories. Sad, touching, hilarious. Yeah. Go and get your summer reading in, in gear. Thank you very much. Cheers, <laughs> Rosie. So nice to chat. Let the waters wash, let the show you. 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 Let the waters wash, let